for March 19th, 2012. It's the Overthinking and Podcast, episode 194. You don't know my momentum. The Overthinking a Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather, here with more moral outrage and self-righteousness than George Clooney getting arrested outside the Sudanese embassy. Here with the panel tonight to discuss all manner of popular culture. Uh, but starting with this, panel, your question of the week. Wait, what was the question of the week? I legitimately forgot. <laughs> it was it about the movie that I didn't see. <laughs> yes, uh, in honor of 21 Jump Street, what is your favorite fictional street? Uh, Pete Fenzel, you are the origin of this question. You are the one who today promised to see 21 Jump Street so that you could be the one person on the podcast who knew about the movie and we could all talk about it uh, and parade our ignorance around as knowledge. Um, and... Uh, and I you are the one, yeah, you are the one who failed <laughs> to see the movie, which you pledged to see. Uh, so you, for that reason, and also because F is, uh, the first letter in alphabetical order in the alphabet of our last names. What, what is your favorite fictional street, Pete Fenzel? Oh man, you know, I mean, I've got two, but I shouldn't really take both of them because I might be taking one away from someone who would like it a lot. Uh, I will apologize to the people I was supposed to see 21 Jump Street with uh, because they went to go see it anyway. Um, and, I, and I do apologize that I wasn't there. To, I hope it was good. I hope that you enjoyed it. But for me, there is really only one street that cheers me up, even in situations like this. And it sends me all the way back to uh, my, my younger years when I used to sit in the back of the, uh, the Aerostar van and sing this with my sisters when we were driving through North Carolina, which is that you gotta hop. Down to Electric Avenue. <laughs> we always used to be, we always used to, you know, there's like that, and we always used to go like, or like, like, that was the game. I'm sure our parents loved it. But, but uh, yeah, and every time I come across an Electric Avenue, which is not an unheard of street, um, it always fills me with joy. I take pictures of it and send it to my family. Do you, do you ever on the road see a minivan that, that has you know, uh, video screens, like small seven inch flat panel, you know, LCD screens in the embedded into the back of the drivers and passenger side headrest so that the kids in the back of the minivan can watch. H- have you seen those things? Yeah, sure, of course. They must uh road trips must be an entirely different animal now than when I was when I was young and my brother and I would, you know, punch each other in the back seat until, you know, one of us cried. And uh right, and then we did annoying things to um uh, to pass the time, right? It must be just like a kind of zombified mouth breathing drooling uh eight hours from Los Angeles to Yosemite National Park, say. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, one of my favorite road trip experiences was when I read all of Jurassic Park in one sitting and then spent all of, of dinner just regurgitating all of the events from the book, like, verbatim. Not verbatim, but obviously summarized. <laughs> but, uh, but just regurgitating <laughs> them in order. And then there were the dinosaurs that they spit venom, and then he had the embryos and he was running through the rain, and then the di- <laughs> I drank a lot of Dr. Pepper that night. It was pretty wild. <laughs> I want, I want to picture that you also did that with like the set piece chapter openings that were about like fractal geometry. <laughs> and then the algorithm calls itself recursively, and then it's infinitely re- reproducible within itself. Yeah, exactly. Me drawing that on the napkin while I'm talking is actually the straight-to-video <laughs> sequel to Shine with Jeffrey Rush. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make, make it, making kids accurately draw fractals is a great way to get them to shut up for about an infinite amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> 
unbounded, unbounded. (laughs) (laughs) For an unbounded amount of time. Uh, John Perich, next in the alphabet. What up, what up, what up? What up? All right, Pete Fenzel, you you started off and I was so worried you were going to take mine because you were talking about your childhood and a favorite song and singing it with your with your family members while while rolling on vacation. Then you mentioned North Carolina. So you clearly weren't going to sing this this Jersey staple, of course, you know, Bruce, uh, the Bruce Springsteen classic if if I may begin. The Scream Dolls Land, a merry dress way. Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays. Roy Orbison sang in full of love. It's Thunder Road. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's Thunder Road. Uh, we've re- yeah, we're really running with this musical thing. <laughs> awesome. Love it. well, it's fun. You know, why not? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a great song. It's... It, it it's really sort of the the perfect encapsulation of of the entire Bruce Springsteen uh, oeuvre to, to to shoehorn that word in here uh, the entire Bruce Springsteen opus in one single song because it's you know about it's about the suburbs and growing up being a teenager and kind of angsty and energetic and wanting to do everything but having very limited resources and knowledge of what's available so you kind of just want to get out and find a girl or a guy and do something and maybe get in a fight and stuff and yeah woo, guitars saxophone yeah i always loved the line about the uh the all the boys that she sent away who haunt the dusty beach road and the skeleton like the skeleton frames of burnt out chevrolets i thought was very yeah. uh there's there's nice. there's so there's so much laden in there i mean there's a girl and she's rejecting guys and there's a road with these abandoned cars on it and she lives here and like layers within layers it's craziness yeah. people have skeletons too just like cars <laughs> <laughs> well as i as i sadly found out in anatomy class not just like (laughs) (laughs) that's the voice of david checkner dave favorite fictional street hey uh you know i'm not going to be that guy who points out that neither of my two predecessors favorite streets were actually streets you know one being (laughs) one being an avenue and one being a road look we're orthogonal people all right dave that's what we do we turn it 90 degrees you're applying a class equivalence that assumes all kinds okay uh so I was going to go with uh, with Baker Street, the home of 221B Baker Street. Uh, Damn you, course. don't say what you were going to do. You just stole mine. Now I have to get another oh, one. You no, it's sure? okay, because that's a pretty yeah. one. But, but Baker Street, I'm actually saving your ass here because uh, Baker Street's a real street. Like one could argue that there is the fictitious version of Baker Street on which you know Sherlock Holmes lives, but like it's a. I'm looking at the map of London right now, and it's it's like a real place and stuff. So, so damn you Brits, damn you Doyle, and your inability to come up with new street names that didn't exist. Um, so anyway, instead of that, I'm going to go with uh, with Maple Street from the episode of the Twilight Zone entitled "The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street." Ooh, I love that one. Yeah, first because it's an awesome episode, and second because long before I'd ever, like, after I had already started watching the old 50s black and white Twilight Zones and loved them, but before I had actually seen this particular episode, uh, we read the screenplay for it in, like, my seventh grade English class, and there was this, like, moment of revelation where, um, where little, like, 12-year-old Schechner realized that under certain circumstances, uh, the, the sort of, like, pop culture crap that you like that everyone sort of by happenstance disrespects as not being worth anything could in a certain light be considered literature worthy of uh, of deep investigation and scrutiny which is of course now the entire purpose of of this site 
Uh, not that I had anything to do with the creation of this site, but I'm still allowed to go on here and feel like I did when I was 12 years old um, doing this podcast. So thank you guys you for did. that. We, we knew you, uh, you know, and uh, we knew you before we started the site. And I, I've often said that it was the spirit of David Schechner who, That's true. You know, yeah. who when we met in college, uh, told me two things. One, to get out of his dorm room. And two... <laughs> To um, uh, that, you know, these uh, these works of pop culture were deserving of serious scrutiny. That was my inspiration for uh, bringing together the the band of, uh, band of misfits that that first started overthinking it. Even though, even though I know that's not true, I'm too choked up to fight against it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Well, I was going to go with Baker. I was going to go with Baker Street, even though it is a a, a real street, I guess. Um, and I was going to. I, I also thought about Mulberry Street, uh, the location of uh, Dr. Seuss's, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. I, I thought someone was going to take Sesame Street, so I was going to s- stay away from that one. Uh, but I'm going to go with uh, Evergreen Terrace. Uh, a um, Evergreen Terrace, a uh, a thoroughfare in Illinois. Uh, no, not in Illinois. In Springfield, in a uh, in a an undisclosed state, where at number seven forty two, uh, Homer Simpson lives with his wife Marge and their three little children, uh, Bart, Maggie, and expecting. The um, <laughs> that, was a, that was a deep cut. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Those are our um, our fictional streets. Uh, but you know what's not fictional? Journalistic integrity. <laughs> what are you talking about? Isn't I have jur- some pretty good evidence that it is a fictional, in fact. But anyway, it, it, isn't journalism as a whole fictional now? Like, isn't that and, and historical fiction at that? In uh, yeah, it's, uh, do you remember um, Michael Moore's Oscar acceptance speech when he when he said uh, again as self righteously as George Clooney, uh, you know, getting arrested outside the Sudanese embassy? He said uh, we we. Um, he said, "Mr. President, uh, we de- we." Uh, he was addressing the president for ex- in his Oscar speech, which is, you know, uh, already you're you're off to a shaky start. He said, um, uh, "We documentary filmmakers are dedicated to the truth, and we live in fictitious times." And that that always always struck me because it is false on the face of it, right? But somehow seems to get at a deeper truth, uh, or at least uh, it it is an attempt to get at a, a deeper truth about about the nature of the time. I don't know, guys. Do you think we live in fictitious times? I don't know if we live in times that are any more or less fictitious than previous times in a strict sense. Okay. If you, I mean, if you're talking about the way that people understand the things that are happening around them by telling stories about them, I mean, the, the very distinction between fiction and nonfiction depends upon what we've talked about even last week as a representative functional relationship between your discourse and, and an underpinning reality, which is very difficult to prove uh, and, and not even prove because proving itself as an act requires that you accept that there's a certain referential relationship between the syntax of the language that you're using and the, and the, and the underlying principles of reality that are dictating it, although not necessarily in certain forms of logic. What I'm saying is, I mean, is that you know the idea of like a hyper reality is not new. Uh, the idea that we sort of live in a map that lies, you know, our own consciousness and senses of self dwell within a fictitious map that is a, a simulacrum of our world that's sort of laid over it, right? Has been uh, mentioned in philosophy for quite some time, but. Um, Maybe we're more aware of it. Unfortunately, no one can tell you what the Matrix is. You just have to find out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. This this stems back from Heroditus, where he first said, dude, what if the color that I call blue and the color that you call blue aren't the same color? 
I'm directly quoting there. <laughs> whoa, whoa. But of course, that's kind of a, ch- a cop out because that's not really what he's talking about. Like what he's really talking about is that like the 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 trust of the media and the government to report on something that's sort of generally accepted as as true has been has been violated by actions that have been selfish, right? And, and that that's the idea, right? Is that like they they fabricated this war above and beyond the standards? And this is the war in Iraq that he's probably talking about at the time more than anything else. Fabricated it based on information that even if it even if it were no more or less you know relating to some sort of primal signified in a strict sense uh felt more fabricated than the usual sorts of of justifications for wars and other sorts of events mm-hmm. right like um in that sense that there was a there was a breach in kind of the circle of readership right and then a breach in the in the um in the co- codes of conduct i suppose um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I've talked enough. Anybody else? I mean, there's a whole bunch of other avenues that you can look for this sort of thing. I mean, part of it is that, of course, he's saying it at the Academy Awards, which is like kind of also kind of silly, right? That right. politics is the place where you're representing these fictional ideas and he's being given authority because the authority of the fiction and the people who represent the fiction as it's defined socially supersedes that of the government. Well, you're, and, I mean, it, yeah, it's funny. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I've always said that, uh, you know, Academy Awards are war by other means. <laughs> uh Klausberg said that, right? Stephen Klausberg. Um. <laughs> uh yeah, so um yeah, right. I, I'm I'm curious about this this uh this thing, like because we, we presume that, that maybe documentary film that the the phrase documentary, you know, with Michael Moore has uh has perhaps more uh, a more authoritative status than than say the word nonfiction has, right? Because nonfiction could be anything. I, I mean, nonfiction includes the Real Housewives of Orange County, right, um, as a category, and yet you know it's it's not uh, really yeah it's not it's a, it's not fictional in the sense that it's not a it's not a. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joey, get that hyperdrive working. <laughs> it's not well, fictional in that it doesn't represent itself as being, you know, as being a story. It represents itself in a in a different way. We all know that all that, you know, reality TV is, you know, as choreographed as any ballet. Wow, the Deep Simpsons cuts are are really coming fast and furious tonight. But uh, it doesn't represent itself in the same way that, you know, your average episode of I don't know, Desperate Housewives, to choose the nearest analog, represents itself. Is that really true? I I think at this point, you know, there there was a time when people, when when reality TV was really sort of first exploding uh, and and becoming its own subset of of the larger television programming, where, where there was that debate, like, you know, are we really watching just people's earnest responses to the the events around them or are people being called and, and pruned you know which which was familiar to any of us who watched uh, professional wrestling back in the early 80s right like the question of like you know are these guys really willing to embarrass themselves that way for donald trump's approval or is this all just staged felt a lot like uh you know did, did the ultimate warrior really just break Hulk Hogan's nose, or is that you know, et cetera, et cetera? Um, but I, I think they've they've kind of emerged. I think at this point, like the debate is, is largely settled. Like we all know that most of the scenarios that most of these shows put their people into are are very highly staged, even if they're not diegetically phrased as such. And so I kind of wonder if, if like reality TV kind of occupies a, a middle ground. Like we understand that. 
it's not necessarily particularly scripted word for word, but it's not intended to be a direct portrayal of like no one would look at that and say look at like the Real Housewives of Orange County and say that it's an accurate depiction of the day to day lives of housewives in Orange County, right? I don't know. Have you ever been to Orange County? Al Saint Germain lives down there. Oh, are we going to do another podcast about the geography of Los Angeles suburbs? (laughs) Yeah, as regards the uh, yeah, as regards the Karate Kid series. Let me tell you. Let me yeah. Okay. It it raises it raises I guess an interesting question debate about what the notion of creation is artistically because on one level there's the conceit that you know a reality TV show isn't sculpted the same way an hour-long procedural drama is sculpted. There's some people just pointing a camera at real people doing real things and letting it happen. Uh, it, it only takes a little consideration to realize that that's, that that's not actually true. There, the editing decisions uh, involved, for one thing, can make, uh, can make the people on the show portray, uh, come across very differently than they might have otherwise intended. One of the, one of the phrases that uh, that I first picked up when uh, when a friend of mine at the time was introducing me to uh, what's Tyre Banks' show, America's Next Top Model, uh, was the idea of the bitch edit. Like, oh, who's getting the bitch edit this week? Because you know you can you can take a you can take a dozen people and film them for a week, and then you know obviously one of them can can come out looking like the bitch depending on where you choose to cut. So there's there's one there's that aspect of creation, and two there's the aspect of people being conscious of their roles as characters. So in other words, there, you know, there are these housewives and they live in Orange County and they're aware of the cameras that are pointed at them. So if they have a particular agenda, whether it's to, you know, promote a record label or a, a fashion label or just to get the truth across that so and so is really a bitch and you know, her her offenses against me are uh, unprovoked and beyond the pale, whereas my offenses against her are merely retaliatory and calmly considered. Uh, you're aware of the camera. You're aware of your role as a character on a show called The Real Housewives of Orange County, even while you're living the actual life of a housewife of Orange County. So yeah, it's, in it's those... Like the, it's, it's like the housewives uncertainty principle, right? <laughs> yes, you can, you, can neither, you can either observe yourself as a housewife or portray yourself as a housewife, but it's very tough to do both at the same time. Yeah, the, the act of observing a housewife changes her momentum and position. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you can, you can know about her posi- position or you can know about her momentum, but there is a, you know, a precisely calculable ratio uh, between what you can know of each, right? Yeah, as you more precisely know one, the other becomes more and more ambiguous. Right. You don't know my momentum. You don't know. <laughs> Werner <laughs> yeah. Ver- Heisenberg was very street. Like he was, he was much more <laughs> <laughs> It's all going down. So in the in the um, in the general in in the kind of general theory of truthiness that we're di- we're discovering here, we we you know what I mean. I I think of these things as being a I'm I'm on a I'm on a continuum kick. So I think of these things as being continua, and we uh, you know you can move the slider up and down. So I think like certain definitions of 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 uh, consciousness of being observed, certain definition certain uh, definitions of editing and curation. These are these are all places where the the idea of real i mean i was thinking i was saying what i was thinking was that the real housewives of orange county uh that that's that kind of claim is only true for certain definitions of real and that you know it's not that <laughs> it's not the definitions of uh, of real that we um 
mm-hmm. uh, uh, that we might all, you know, agree on. I, the, you know, right? The references to the joke uh, that two plus two is five for certain definitions of two, or for certain values of two. Yeah, anyway. you, you just you have to quote your error values, and then you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Two plus or minus what? Point five. Well, it's two plus two plus two is five plus or minus. It's called one point two. Yeah, right. You know, um, so- standard error of the mean. Here's what, here, here's here's why I'm bringing this up. There was this whole uh, uh, you know craziness about the monologist Mike Daisy or Daisy. I guess we'll call him Mike Daisy because that's that's cooler. Um, uh, who uh, has performed a uh, a one man show, a monologue where he he sits at a table and tells uh, from an outline. Uh, but uh, extemporaneously, at least it was extemporaneously the first few times, a story that he calls The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. Uh, and this is a, this is, you know, it's funny, like this kind of solo performance is a very niche, um, very niche, you know, form of theater. But this one has gotten uh, a lot of. A lot of airplay. It's been done at the Public Theater in New York, which is a sort of a, a well-known downtown uh, New York City theater. Um, uh, Mr. Daisy uh, published an op-ed in the New York Times, or they published his op-ed, I should say, in the in the New York Times the day after Steve Jobs died. And in this uh, in this monologue called the the uh, the agony and the ecstasy of Steve Jobs. Um, he alleges uh, that he has firsthand no- or secondhand knowledge that he has heard firsthand from people who are the victims of uh, uh, what uh, labor abuses at Foxconn, uh, one of the one of the factories in China where Apple Electronics and a lot of and, Foxconn and, is a and, company. It's not a factory. Oh yeah. Well, it, it, yeah. it owns several factories, but but there have been legitimate. Um, a journalistic in- inquiries into like abuses at Fox. Sure, yeah, I, I, and I think that this is one of the things. No one disputes that that there are you know la- labor abuses in in uh, any number of these factories run by any number of these companies um, in the developing world uh, where you know uh, our electronics are made, uh, and not just Apple Electronics, but Apple happens to be you know. What really hot stuff right now? So yeah, they're they're a conscious, they're a brand. Lots of people are conscious of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they're they, they get a lot of like brand gravity, and so like a lot of the attention goes there. So you know, if you're going to talk about labor abuses, you're going to talk about Apple's uh, labor abuses. And so you know, Mr. Daisy, Mike Daisy uh, alleges certain things in this because it's a it's a story. It's a one person performance, and it's like he's telling a story, and he tells it in the first person about him doing things. Um, you know, I went to China. I saw people. My translator and I saw people whose, um, you know, I don't know, who had neurological damage from exposure to hexane gas, which is used to clean, uh, you know, to clean the iPad screens uh, and is more efficient than alcohol. So they use it, but it gives everyone nerve damage. Or I saw someone whose hand was crushed in a, you know, in a, in a press. And, and the, these, particular, these particular claims, I think, I think I'm accurate. Uh, I, I may be wrong, but these two yeah, claims... Yeah. Are, are specific claims that he makes in the show that turn uh, so it turns out uh, that they were fabricated, and um, this became an issue when he went on. Sorry, I, I realize I'm doing a lot of ramp up to this, but not everyone. I think Dave was not aware of this, so not everyone is aware of this. Uh, yeah, th- this, this is this this particular incident. I mean, the the Foxconn abuses have been around or have been sort of in the in the public media for a while now, but this particular story is is new to me. So yeah, and, and Matt's about to explain why. Uh, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> 
So uh, he uh, did a week on where uh, This American Life broadcast uh, a part of his his monologue. And This American Life is a you know documentary radio program where everyone expects that what what they hear is true in in the simple way that we all understand true. That yeah. is to say, when someone on This American Life says, I went to China, I met people with neurological damage, that, that those things are, in fact, uh, factually accurate and, you know, correspond to a reality that anyone could observe, given, you know, the proper access to the time and the place. And so it turns out that a little fact checking by some people uh, has has revealed that uh, Mike Daisy has uh, fabricated certain of these of these details uh, and has said that he, he uh, did that in, in because his, his monologue is a work of theater. And so it is, uh, it uses fictional techniques to tell a larger truth and that, uh, you know, and that, you know, he regrets sort of presenting it on this American life without labeling it as uh, being, you know, a work of the imagination rather than a work of uh, reportage. Right. Have, I mean, have I done justice to the yeah, to the thing that we're in? Yeah, there's there's a couple couple different things going on. So there are there are some elements that I believe uh, Daisy just uh, is it Daisy or Daisy? Do we know? I'm going to say Daisy. Let's call him Mike. Let's call him Mike. Mike. Thank you. That, that's that's <laughs> probably better. There are some elements that Mike uh, either either manufactured or just got wrong. Like the, like the use of hexane gas, I believe, is one of them. I I don't think Foxconn actually does use that, or not for cleaning, at least based on the based on the news I read. So that there so there are some things that are just outright fabrications, and there are other things that are that actually happen, but not to Mike. In other words, that he did not that he did not witness personally, and the first the first is obviously you know it's regrettable and it, it it tarnishes the credibility of the whole of the whole report. The second I think are slightly more understandable, at least from the viewpoint of a theater monologue, because you know and uh, there's there's a link by uh, there's a link that I'll, I'll share in the show notes by uh, by Matthew Baldwin. Uh, he's a uh, he's a he's a blogger who primarily does board games, but he also worked with uh, with Mike uh, when they were both uh, Amazon customer service reps together and Mike uh, Mike Mike's original claim to fame was putting together a a, a similar one man show called 21 Dog Years which was about his time as an Amazon customer service rep and Baldwin uh, Matthew Baldwin says that you know he's seen the show and he's he's read the book based on it and you know it's it's full of stuff that could plausibly have happened, but there are also some some things in there that also have that ring of, you know, it's a story that clearly happened to somebody else that Mike put himself into as a narrator because that makes for a more compelling story. You know, it, it's it's much more it's much more interesting to say this happened to me than I heard secondhand from somebody else who knew a guy that this might have happened. Because once you start tacking modifiers onto it, it's just it's just a less graceful narration. Mm-hmm. So the, the the debate that's sort of risen as a result of this is what is it that makes that okay in theater that doesn't make it okay for this American life? I mean, I think – oh, go ahead. Uh, no, no that's, that, that's, that's the question. I'm, I'm tossing it out to you guys now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was going to say that um, – you know, does anyone I – mean, there are, of course, like, a, a, you know – very famous works of, of propaganda literature that are in some cases considered, you know, great contributions to the literary canon that 
that do take on exactly this kind of, of, um, of storytelling technique, right? I'm thinking of um, like Uncle Tom's Cabin or uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, uh, you know, both of which tell stories about, you know, horrific abuses in the first person and at least diegetically claim to be, you know, fully accurate and are also, you know, taking upon this technique so as to illustrate, you know, the broader ills that are done. And I just don't really know if, if within their context, if either of these works were sort of prefaced as they were given to society as obvious works of fiction that were meant to imitate uh, pieces of journalism. Right. Like, is, is it OK if you say, you know, look, if you start off by saying, all right, this is a novel. But the topic of this novel is meant to be something that, that, you know, could for all purposes be real. I mean, this is a, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I can't say for sure without some really Googling as fast as possible whether people at the time thought that Uncle Tom's Cabin was nonfiction. Um, like whether they thought of it as – but I will say that there is a function in the theater of imitation – I think that makes people a little bit more comfortable with doing this sort of work. A lot of what you're doing as a theatrical person is your, your, you know, according to Aristotle, right? You're, you're mimetic. You're imitating something else, right? Like you're, you're trying to show uh, that there's, there's some, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're trying to show by reflecting something back to people things that they might not necessarily know about it. So, you, so you can't think of if you're doing the theater, you can't think of like acting and being a character as a lie. And this is like a, a non-trivial argument over the course of the history of drama at different points when different movements tried to sort of ban theaters and ban entertainments, you know, and going back even farther than England into the ancient times where it's like, well, you know, theater – Plato even thought that theater was bad, right, because it was distracting people from things that were real or true, right, in certain ways. Uh, I don't know if I'm remembering that exactly correctly, but I think Aristotle was in favor of it. Plato was against it. But a theater person has to believe – just by an anthropic principle, just by the fact that there's still a theater person, that there is something that is not just abject falsehood about mimesis, about imitation, right? And, like, I can pretend to be... Now, the thing that that's, people often seem to do is they put that veneer of plausible deniability over it. You know, they say, like, well, it was, you know... If, if, if the guy's name, the real guy's name was Uncle Joe, then we make it about Uncle Tom. Or, you know, my favorite recent one was the movie Margin Call. Which is great and is a good counterexample to what this is going on here, where it's it's much much. So I, from what I can tell from it, it's a much much truer account of the kind of uh, feelings and personalities and decisions that go along with like the collapse of a major investment bank like Lehman Brothers. And then Jeremy Irons' character's name is even like a pun on the name of the CEO guy of Lehman Brothers. Uh, and if you compare it to something like Too Big to Fail, where the actors are playing the actual like characters that represent the actual people versus this like fictionalized account. Fictionalized account has more freedom to be true because it doesn't have to verify everything that it says, uh, which, it, which ironically in this day and age, to the extent that this is a fictionalized age, I feel like verifying things makes them less true a lot of the time, right? <laughs> which is one of the big problems with logical positivism. And, and, and that logical positivism being you know, a form of you know, literary theory and philosophy which says that you know, you can speak truthfully, and in fact, if you say anything that can't be experimentally or experientially verified as true or false, it's meaningless. Um, and, and I think that, that what this is showing is the practical weaknesses of that kind of approach, because it requires you to assert nothing that you're not certain of, and then the people who get to assert things kind of rule the day. But also, it just like, if you can control whether someone is certain about something, then you control their right to say it, which in turn controls whether it becomes part of the discourse, drink. Does that make sense? I've been rambling a lot. 
No, that, I mean that that does make sense. I mean that yeah. that does make sense. I'm I'm not sure it's as much of an indictment of logical positivism as as you would as you would go for. But I I, I see what you're getting at. I do. Yeah, wanna... I don't think it's an indictment from like oh this is an invalid philosophy. Just in terms of like that's not how this is working. Right. Okay. Like it has practical problems in like the application of it to modern to to like our contemporary problems. Yeah. I mean, I I. Yeah, I agree with your notion that it's that, that it can be turned into a great way to shut down a conversation, which you know is a, is a tool of power. Um, there is one, there is one point I want to make about about uh, Mike Daisy. Or I'm going with Daisy. I apologize, Mike, Mike. Our buddy Mike. Our, our buddy Mike. <laughs> Mikey Mike. Uh, one one point I want to make about the about the show. There there was the there was a comparison, Schechner, that you were making with. Uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and Uncle Tom's Cabin and abolitionist, you know, slave narratives and things like that and about ways to expose, you know, in, in all those cases, literally poor working conditions and the comparison there. The the one thing I want to point out is that uh, the, the Mike's show, The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, is not entirely about working conditions in Foxconn. I, in fact, I don't even think it's primarily meant as an expose. I think it's meant as a sort of meditation and interrogation of the sort of dichotomy that we as consumers have to accept between the beauty and utility of these Apple products and the terrible working conditions in which they're made. At least th- this is my understanding of it based on reviews, which are which are sort of hard to find now because the this story has, has very quickly overtaken uh, the the inherent nature of the play, but it's it's about the whole sort of Apple product experience, not specifically Foxconn working conditions. So I don't know whether that gives Mike more license or less. I would I would say more because it's it's clearly meant to be about, be about you know the the first world experience of enjoying Apple products. Now knowing what we know about how these products are made in the third world. So in that case, because it is very experiential and very personal, it's allowed to be it's allowed to be a narrative. It's allowed to be one guy saying what he thinks and feels, even if it's not reproducible or duplicatable. And in that case, you get a little more license to, uh, I guess, to 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 fudge the truth. Yeah, I think I think another factor that works with that idea of license is the expectations of the form of the theatrical production and storytelling as a form of theatrical production i mean i'm no authority on the on it but i've you know taken a couple workshops um there the why do people do this storytelling kind of art and i don't think it's because they a storytelling being i'm going to stand or sit here and i'm going to tell you something that happened in the first person or something close to the first person as opposed to say if he goes out there wearing a black turtleneck with some glasses on and it's like i'm steve jobs and this is like my dreamscape right this is like what i think of and what's happening in my dreams personally like pretending to be steve jobs rather than telling his own story about steve jobs and i think that the reason that you want to go into storytelling is not because you want to present things that are more verifiably true like that's not really the point and it's kind of a pitfall for people who get involved Involved in it, um, it's really because you're trying to get to the heart of the kind of um, human vulnerability in the middle of the account, right? Like you're you're trying to present it in a way that's kind of a bit more stripped down, and you're trying to make an emotional connection with the audience. So if that's the purpose of the medium, right? If it's if it's really that different from a news anchor's job, right, which is to inspire confidence in the verifiability of his facts, you know, if the reason that you're doing it is so much different, the big crime is not in presenting. It incorrectly in the first place. It's just it's the switching of contexts, 
right? It's like the moving it from one context where there's one expectation to another context where there's another expectation. Right. And yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, do, that does make sense. And yeah, that, that, that calls into questions a, a certain amount of integrity at that point because – you know, was was Mike conscious of the different expectations between when he was doing it at Woolly Mammoth Theater versus when he's doing it on the air with Ira Glass? So yeah, and and also on top of that, you know, I think that if we go back to the Real Housewives, there is a blurring of these expectations across genres. Like it, it gets complicated. I and mean, the idea of whether someone expects a reality show to correspond to reality, uh, or to correspond to fiction, or to what does it correspond to at all? Well, right, yeah. and and. It, I guess my point before on that was that it's become its own sort of hybridization between reality and fiction, and that's what people expect. Right. right? You, you don't tune into it to see either fiction or reality. You tune into it to see people with um, really outrageous personalities being put into just peculiar scenarios and then having them react without having had any, any forewarning or preparation on, on that scenario. It's right. its own it's its own thing. Right. But you can even extend it to stuff you see on the internet, like, oh, you know, like, get in on this, you know, grant for school now, and there's the person dancing, right? Like, a lot of, like, look at this weird tip that this mom found out about cleaning your teeth. One you know, weird like it's all old around tip. Us. A weird old tip. <laughs> what about the weird old tip, people? Let's not forget about the weird old that's, tip. That, by the way, that, that is, that's my personal name for one special part of my anatomy. <laughs> uh, You're no one weird old tip that a housewife found. <laughs> but the point is that um, you know there's a lot, and also even the PR companies that sell stories to the news agencies, right? And like the um, and then all the different ways in which people like the televisions on the television commercials late at night that are meant to look like CNN, so that old people will call like believe that it's true and sell their house, you know, like stuff like that. You know, all the all of the attempts to have you seen you've seen these things, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot so of it, like, I mean, a lot of it is predatory and re- and really kind of morally reprehensible. Yeah, but it's also a huge part of our culture and it's happening all around us all the time and it has to be affecting us in some way. Oh, the and, ways in which like the been, different contexts. What? It's been happening for centuries in just various yeah. forms of media, right? This is just the latest flavor of, of preying on the old people. <laughs> but it's pretty uh, saturating it, right now, I guess. Well, that, that's because the there are more old people now than there have ever been before. <laughs> that's clearly the reason. <laughs> right. it's, 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 a gro- it's a growth market. <laughs> yeah, it's actually more profitable to defraud the senior citizens now than it's been in the past, which is why... <laughs> so much advertising and, and uh, it's, it's it's an era whose time has come speaking exactly. of <laughs> speaking of people who are now old and uh, and the documentary art form how's that for how's that for a segue how's that for a segue um, where you're going. is this 21 jump street that we're talking about because that was a fictional oh. <laughs> no, no, no. Watch, watch where I'm going with this. Speaking of, of people who are now old and the documentary art form, uh, just before this podcast, in fact, literally minutes before, I uh, finished watching When We Were Kings, the documentary of the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle, the, uh, Foreman, the Foreman Ali fight that took place in uh, Kinshasa Zaire. Which, uh, and so it's, it's kind of fortuitous that, that this came up because... You know, when we were kings, uh, it's you know it's a great documentary. It's it's widely considered one of the best sports documentaries of all time, and it's it's also just genuinely engaging to watch. It's it's really it's really well done and, and really entertaining, and you know so uh, coming into it, there's you know obviously so we've got this we've got reality TV at one end of the spectrum. We've got you know this this Mike Daisy monologue that's sort of straddling the the middle ground and then we have at the far end you know a documentary which is which is primarily you know footage that was taken of the event as it was happening. So but you also get 
You also get aspects of, I think, Schechner, what you were hinting at with this with this reality TV aspect of people being conscious of people being conscious of themselves on camera. Because Muhammad Ali, for instance, you know, what, probably one of the 20th century champions of someone who was conscious of his role on camera, someone who was conscious of his role as a showman and a self-promoter and a performer, as you will, and who, who very clearly adopted a persona when the cameras were rolling and was, was always aware of that. And he, he speaks several times to it about how, you know, oh, this will be a great opportunity now that, you know, I've, now that I've come to Africa and I've met, you know, real African people. I can, I can go back to the States and we can take this, you know, we can take the film that comes of this, you know, the film that would become 20 years later when we were kings and, you know, show it to, show it to students in, you know, the inner cities and show them, you know, what Africa is like, that there are people elsewhere in the world who are just like them. So he's, he's very much aware of the film that is being made of him while he's also, you know, preparing for this fight that he has to go and go and perform. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that documentary. It's, it's really wonderful. And it's, it's, uh, it's very, it, it's really related to a lot of the stuff that's going on right now too, right? Like the stuff in Africa, <laughs> I mean, geographically, I guess that's kind of a, that's kind of a stretch, but just like the George Clooney stuff that we talked about, the Apple stuff that we're talking about, that does seem to be kind of on the, on the nexus, the crossroads between these things. It also points out like why I would, uh, in addition to my complete lack of athletic acumen, uh, why I would never be considered like a great sports star. Because like, you know, I mean, I've been in the science so long that like I never want to say anything uh, definitive unless I know that I've got proof. Or, and, and if I don't really have proof, I'll try and put some sort of comfortable window around it. So I'll be like, <laughs> I, I'm among the greatest. <laughs> I, I, I'm considered by some circles to be in the top echelon of the great ones. Uh, so, you know, is Foreman going to go down? I don't know. I mean, there's a certain probability that I'll defeat him. Uh, I haven't really looked at the numbers. Uh, anyway. So, well, I mean, I think. Oh, go ahead. Well, so one of the interesting things about the movie uh, that I, I mean, I, I came into it with no expectations, and and honestly, I I had. I was I was tenuously aware of of Ali's career, but I it had been long enough since I'd read about him that I that I honestly forgot who won the fight. So it was it was genuinely tense watching the fight all the way up. Although you could sort of tell by the way the story is being sculpted, and you know even though it is of course a documentary and therefore notionally reality, there are editing techniques and the way narration accompanies it that you can tell is meant to sketch a story, sketch a narrative arc, and I can tell by that that they're. You know, they're painting Ali as the favorite, but also someone plagued by self-doubt. So you wonder how he's going to do. So obviously the, the setup there is for a triumphant third act comeback. And spoiler alert, Muhammad Ali did knock George Foreman out in the eighth round of the Rumble in the Jungle, October 30th, 1974. Sorry, guys. So but one of the one of the things that, <laughs> that interested me, because I, I didn't I didn't know anything about the, the documentary going in, was that the. The primary voices which we follow through it are all these old white guys. Like if if I if I wanted to pick, you know, two people to talk about the the African experience in the 1970s, whether it's, you know, African-Americans, you know, in the in the fallout from the civil rights era, you know, after Dr. King was assassinated and after Malcolm X was assassinated and and, you know, Bobby Kennedy and all them, you know, the fallout of the civil rights era in the 70s or the African experience in the heart of Africa itself when, you know, the Congo was being fought over with all these bloody civil wars and these post-colonial go- post-colonial governments that are built on a foundation of torture. The last two people, the last two people on earth I would I would go to for that would be George Plimpton and Norman Mailer. 
And yet, <laughs> actually, no. William F. Buckley would be the very last person I would I would go yeah. to. Uh, I, I, David Duke's on that list for me. <laughs> yeah, I'd, probably, I'd probably go with like uh, Sherry Lewis, just arbitrarily. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now you know what? She's just a, she's a mouthpiece for Lamb Chop. <laughs> you know. No, I, I, I bet I bet Sherry Lewis is down. I bet she's down. Oh, but, yeah, uh, <laughs> the song that doesn't but, end is the revolution that won't be televised. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, and it, of course, you know, ignorant as I was of the event, I didn't realize, that, you know, they were actually there. I mean, Plimpton was covering it for, uh, for Sports Illustrated and Norman Mailer for Time or, or vice versa. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was also there for Rolling Stone, but he apparently missed the fight entirely. So, <laughs> true, true to life. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's sort of an interesting realization about how, yeah, how at a certain point in a in a subaltern culture's development, you really need people from the uh, you you have to have people from what I, for lack of a better word, is the dominant culture to to speak to speak on its behalf. Like there weren't, I don't I don't think there were a lot of of, of black journalists at the time who could who could go and and cover something like that and and get the same kind of audience that Norman Mailer or George Plimpton would. I mean, they were both. They're both, you know, internationally known journalists and and writers at the time. So, you know, if if they're covering it, it's it's going to be, it it would be considered to be worth reading in its own right. But I don't I don't know if there was, uh, ex- except perhaps Alex Haley, maybe I don't think there I don't know if there were equivalent black voices, which is kind of unfortunate because you know as as good a read as as George Plimpton can give us of you know the the Cassius Clay experience, you know, growing up in in Louisville and then coming back to Zaire, et cetera. There, there's always going to be that remove. There's always going to be that that step outside of it, kind of like you know how Mike Daisy when he goes to uh, when he goes to uh, rural China, he needs an interpreter to go with him, and it and it was this interpreter who who got in touch with NPR and said, actually, that's not ha- what Mike Daisy said is not exactly how it went down. So Mike Daisy's coming at this experience in in China with Foxconn from a necessary remove, and George Plimpton is coming at this experience in Zaire from unnecessary remove and you know it's it's still good but you wonder if it's as good as it can be and that's the question then is you know what is this goodness that we're looking for because one of the things to remember is that you know we're white dudes like on this podcast i know we've tried to have women on the podcast but but i'm curious to think whether somebody living in lagos would have the same opinion about the journalists who covered the Rumble in the Jungle. Were I mean, I don't know. I literally don't know. Were they hearing about it from Nigerian journalists? Were they hearing about it from Congolese journalists? Were they hearing about it from white journalists? Like who were talking about it? Like when the news was in the streets, you know, in in Dakar or in Cairo, you know, or I mean, again, not all black people, um, but in in these other places, who was telling the story there? And that I just legitimately don't know. There's a certain extent to which it's it's kind of expected that the earpiece. That, that we would have is tuned to that frequency, I suppose, because of who we are. But I think the other side of it is that we're interested. And I don't just mean – I mean that sort of with a capital I. Like there's a political interest on behalf of you know white people in what happens in the Ali, Frazier, in the Ali Foreman fight, just as there's an interest on behalf of white people what happens to Apple. And one thing that I heard on a couple of different business podcasts about this whole story is, I mean, it doesn't really matter uh, – 
that all this stuff about Foxconn got out in certain ways, right? Because like China is totally fine with labor abuses. They're totally fine with it. They're not going to. Foxconn is a huge company that does tech work for most of the electronics manufacturers in the world. Um, they are not going to get in trouble in a major way for this. Um, they, they don't. Nobody cares. So uh, the and then Apple people are going to buy their products anyway. You know, I mean, like this one scandal is not a big enough thing to tip the scales. It could damage the brand, and then over time, those sorts of things accrue. The interesting thing about this story is the people it affects the most are Apple employees. And that was what I kept hearing on some places like Motley Fool, some other places where I was hearing about this. Because Apple employees see as a major benefit of working for Apple this sense of the integrity of their work, right? And, and they have, they're often very progressive people, and they often think of themselves as, like, you know, very environmentally friendly and very, like, culturally progressive and all this other stuff. And, in, and I mean, and in fact, like, the environmental friendliness of, of certain manufacturing processes and materials in the Macintosh computers is part of their selling point. I mean, it was done when Steve Jobs was alive. It was part of his keynote that, you know what I mean? Sorry. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's one, a, one detail yeah, in your, in your tapestry that you're weaving. It is definitely part of the relationship with the customers and particularly with the relationship with like the real, you know, Maven customers who are the real cutting edge and disseminating word of mouth to all the other customers. But, you know, in the, t- in the fight for talent in the information technology industry, why do you signal out, single out Apple when everybody is doing labor abuses in China? You know, like, why do you single them out? Well, you single them out because it puts pressure on the organization through their employees because the employees of, like, Hewlett-Packard aren't going to care as much as the employees of Apple are. You know, and, and thus, that's why you put the pressure there, which, which – and the reason I bring that up is not necessarily just to talk about that one fact, but to say, you know, you're targeting a very specific audience with this story. And thus, the idea that it's being transferred through a very specific earpiece and a very specific perspective, like there's a lot of, of specific relationships of money and power and politics that are associated with the story. And, and, and then what would it be for this story to be good? Like if the Foxconn story were being told by like a Chinese laborer, right? Or even China, you know, skilled manufacturing laborer. I don't want to make them seem unskilled. But if, if she's telling the story and it's in Mandarin and like what's, you know, what's the extent to which this is going to have the effect that it's supposed to have, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, and is the goodness the truth of it? Is the goodness the eff- efficacy of it? You know, is what is the goodness, right? Um, yeah. The justice. What is the justice? And I, 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 it's a tough question. I think. I yeah, certainly I, lying about when, it isn't the best thing to do. True. Um, I mean, when right. when I when I when I first when I when I brought it up a minute ago, I I suppose I meant goodness as in legitimacy or and here I'm getting into fuzzy language, which I hate, but you know, a a sort of true to life experience that can be related to by the people living through it. Authenticity is what you're looking for. Authenticity. Thank you. That's, that's that's a much better word, but to your, but to your point, uh, yeah, I, I think there, there's also something to be said of making sure the right people hear it. And if, if I wanted to target a message at progressive Apple employees or, you know, that, that subset of progressive people in the world, I mean, the, the two best places to, to deliver it would be, uh, one, through independent New York theater or two, through NPR, which are, which are the two places where this story broke in, you know, Mike Daisy's original show and in This American Life. So, I mean, if, if I were a world conquering maniac rather than, you know, taking over all the, the world's TV broadcasts oh. at once. John, you know, you're would, our conquering maniac. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, but, if, you know, rather, rather than taking over every TV in the world at once, like, you know, Cobra Commander always does, I would, you know, I would take over NPR and, you know, Second City Theater in Chicago and my message would get out that way and it'd be much cheaper and I could save some of that money to build up my, my mountain fortresses defenses against James Bond. 
I mean, people do this. This is a standard strategy at at marketing companies to figure out the specific influencers and to affect them. But anyway, uh, yeah, Dave, go go for it. Oh, I was just going to ask John, like, if you were to take over all the airwaves simultaneously, would you go with just, like, a blue hood over your face or the full metal mask? <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's a couple different things because there's the blue hood, which is uh-huh. you know, very popular. There's the there's the tra- there's the opaque reflective globe mask, which he, which yeah. I I always took as sort of like the battle uniform. Like the blue hood is diplomatic dress, like you <laughs> that, that for that, for fancy functions. Yeah, that's that's his formal attire, right? Right, right. But the 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 mirror mask is sort of like his battle gear. Like if he's got to run around or jump out of a detonating helicopter, as he often does, then then he wants something that's not gonna gonna flap up in the in the process and then in the uh, it it reflects blue lasers too right which i I would hope yeah Yeah. blue lasers primarily being light and yeah and and of course and then in the second series the one that came out in the 90s there were there was this sort of like metal frame mask around his head which was (laughs) was different entirely and uh that that one i didn't i didn't like much at all so let's let's stick with one of the original two so blue hood blue hood Yes, if I'm if I'm addressing the if I'm addressing the world, it's it's going to be Blue Hood. Unless I'm trying to like really get like if unless I'm trying to really go for authenticity, like you know, like I'm I'm in front of the flag and it's a handheld camera and I've got an assault <laughs> rifle in my hand and I've got another guy with, me with an assault <laughs> rifle in his hand, then I'll yeah. go for the mirror mask. See, I would I would go mirror mask because you don't really know where his head is in the mirror mask, right? Like there could be a couple of inches between his face and the mask. And you could have like you know like a sippy cup in there or like a candy bar, uh, maybe some light reading. You know, if you get bored, and like no one will know, they'll just think that you're in command of your forces the entire time. People of Earth, pay attention to my. Well, let me ask you guys this: If you're going to have an army of clones, do you go for robot clones or biological clones? Oof. Like the Shek bots or the Parrish bots that'll be. <laughs> in, in, in what sense are the robots clones? Oh, hi. Like Doombots. By the way, oh, sorry. I'm, st- I'm still on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase it and say they're doppelgangers. Like they are, they are meant to imitate you and serve as your proxies, both, but also to act collectively in doing things like well, I mean, running a, down the street robot, yelling your name. But- if it's a robot clone, this really raises the questions of authenticity because, you know, <laughs> Can a robot ever really know the human experience? I mean, no matter how accurately you program it, there's going to be some essential silly. Oh God, my robot is killing me! But John, ah! let me. It's, the question is whether the robot knows the human experience authentically, or is it that whether the robot can aim the space laser? Like, are we talking about outcomes here? Or are we talking about something intrinsic about the situation? Right? I well, think there's an analogy there. Well, I mean, the presum- the presumption is well. I mean, I don't really care about the robot's knowledge of the human experience because I just want them to aim the space lasers. The robots are an explicitly subaltern class. But if we're asking about the robot experience in America from, you know, it's America's founding on the backs of robotic labor to the the tricky, you know, stage of robotic liberation through the the 60s, 70s, through the... Through through the the period today where we finally have you know progressed past our tricky heritage and finally elected a robot president, Testify. it's uh, that 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 went weird way quick. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm a bi- I, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Bill of Rights, which dictates that you know uh, 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 the executive branch may not like harm a human being or by an action allow a human being to come <laughs> and that the judicial branch needs to you know uh, follow yeah, th- th- order those, are, those are the three branches of government right exactly exactly <laughs> the three branches of robotics exactly yeah. exactly 
<laughs> so we fixed this, right? Like we solved it. I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we right. solved um, something. Mike, not, you can I mean, th- I'm not sure. I'm I'm a little offended by the, the by the notion of robots as a subaltern class. Where you know what I mean? Like Rachel, for example, was a different kind of replicant, and we discovered that she was not, you know, programmed to self destruct after. Uh, that's true. That's true. I also, I mean, we shouldn't think of robots uh, that way because there are also a lot of powerful and influential robots too, like you know, like like R two D two and like Bob Dole and Dick, Dick Cheney. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was wondering what politician was going to come up as the. Uh, yeah, as I the on the other way, but like, yeah, like R two D two, IG eighty eight, or uh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or, How else could he fight those robots unless he himself were a robot? <laughs> <laughs> It's the only explanation for that movie, Real Steel, where he fights – he doesn't actually fight the robots. Am, am I the only one who thought that the, the first draft of Real Steel was a small wonder movie remake? Oh, and where the kid was going to It just fight. got rewritten time and time again until it was just un, unintelligible to the original authors. It's small, <laughs> I mean if Small Wonder got remade, though, Vicky would be like a nymphomaniac or something. It would be more like The Vampire Diaries than it is like the, right, old, right. the old show like Small Wonder, right? Yeah, to, I think to, we have catch, to catch a robo-predator, really. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you deposit your seating unit over there? <laughs> I have I have prepared some cookies. <laughs> they have silicone chips <laughs> and macadamia nuts and bolts. <laughs> oh, it's just like my motherboard used to make. Oh, snap. Damn. I don't think we can I don't think we can get lower than that, so maybe we'll wrap it up. Maybe we'll wrap it up. It's lowering further. Maybe we'll wrap it up uh, here for today. So uh, this has been today's Overthinking Podcast. Uh, a little business before we go. Um, sometimes we ask you to, to like the show or to, uh, to give it a star rating, hopefully a high one, on iTunes. I am not asking you to do it this week, but I will ask you to do it next week. Next week is, uh, will be obviously our Hunger Games show because the film is, is coming out. A number of the overthinkers have read, have read the books. It's been remarked on and written on. Uh, a few times on on the site, and uh, because we're hooking into just what what looks to be a pop cultural juggernaut, um, we'll use that. You know, uh, if you if you are an audience member and you care about the Overthinking Podcast, help us out next week because it seems like we'll have the largest platform to uh, get our stuff out there uh, hooked to a big pop culture phenomenon. Also, we'll have seen the movie. It'll right. be awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so next week, uh, prepare yourself for next week. I shall ask you to open iTunes and to uh, to go rate the podcast. Uh, the the week after yeah. that, though, it will release on this- April. Yeah. This week, you should dislike the podcast. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, to be clear. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a zero-sum game. You can like every podcast. You don't have a certain quantity of like to distribute among all the episodes of the podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm uh, going to need to see an exhaustive proof of that. <laughs> liking as a social gesture is, is <laughs> you know, I don't know, extremely low cost. So we... Um, uh, we're going to ask you to do that next week. And then the following week, uh, I just uh, I just got a chat while we were recording from Randall Schwartz, Merlin, uh, who is on a, uh, you know, a very well-known technology podcast on the Twit Network, uh, who says that he can join us for the April Fool's Day podcast, which we'll, we'll record on April Fool's Day and release on the day after April Fool's Day, which will be a sort of April Fool's Day joke, I suppose, in a way. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, like you know, like Mike Dicey's monologue, the whole thing will be fabricated. So uh, that's what's coming up in the next uh, next couple of weeks. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can email us at podcastoverthinking.com. Call or text 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Or join the conversation in the comments on the show notes. We'll be back with The Hunger Games next week. We promise everything that we say about it will be, in fact, uh, true, factually true, <laughs> and authentic um, about this work of speculative fiction. Uh, but until next week, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. That was a weird period in the 80s. That era of science fiction sitcoms, like Small Wonder and Out of This World, and I, I guess that my, my Secret Identity, if you remember that one. Yep. Uh, Harry and the Hendersons I might throw in there, too. Not really science fi- sci-fi. And Alf. But... Don't forget Alf. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who could forget weird. Alf? Despite, despite thousands of dollars worth of therapy. <laughs> Before you get up for that final snack, I want you to know I've got your cat. <laughs> really? That was the, that was the commercial. That was the bumper. That was the commercial bumper for like the second act of Alf. Right? That's right. It was. I remember that. Wow. That. <laughs> speaking of therapy, that just triggered a whole rush of. That just triggered a whole rush of Proustian memories. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like Proust. It's like, it's like Proust in the Madeleine. <laughs> Alf's way. Is that what we're talking about now? <laughs>